Hello and welcome to Top in Tech, a global council podcast. My name is Conan Darcy. I'm the regular host of this podcast and the Senior Practice Director at GC. Today is the latest in our monthly series of interviews with the leading thinkers and thought leaders in tech policy globally. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Lorna Woods, who is a professor of internet law at Essex Law School. Lorna is an expert in media policy, communications regulation, data protection, social media, and all-round expert on internet governance. She is perhaps best known as one of the architects of the UK's online safety bill. She co-authored a series of papers which set out the stall for a duty of care approach to online safety regulation. This was then taken up by the UK government and over a series of years has contributed to what we have before us in the British Parliament that will be a landmark piece of legislation. So Lorna, welcome to the podcast. There's three basic things that I'd like to talk through today in that overall bracket of online safety policy. The first is to look at the bill before us in the UK, which is obviously the online safety bill. We've already talked a little bit in the introduction about your role in the genesis of that piece of legislation. I'd then like to go into a little bit, again, linked to the online safety bill and the online safety regulation, but your broader philosophy for digital regulation and how the different pieces of digital regulation, whether that's online safety, whether that's the competition element or data protection, how those sort of things fit together and how the UK fits in the broader global efforts of regulating the tech sector. And then finally, like any podcast or piece of tech policy analysis at the moment, it's hard to avoid chat GPT, generative AI, other competitors. So I'd really like to get your views on that. And in particular, the way in which online safety and AI policy is starting to overlap and to get your views on whether the piece of legislation that you're best known for needs to adjust and change in response. So if we could, as I said, go to the start on the bill itself, I'd like to get your your view. Just before we started recording, you were talking about the genesis of the bill and the initial blogs that you and Will Perrin put together, which then fed directly into the thought processes within the British government that lay behind this bill. And central to that was this idea of an overarching duty of care on companies that are providing user-generated content online, a systems and processes approach. But one criticism you would hear of where the bill has got to now is that while that broadly remains the core part of the legislation. In many other areas, it's got very specific and there's that technology neutral, that systems and approach, approach, that duty of care approach is getting layered a bit with all sorts of different requirements. So I'd just be interested to start with just to get your view on whether you agree with that, whether you think that's a concern or whether actually you think the bill's looking in pretty good shape as it gets towards the final stages in the House of Lords. I think there's some validity to the concern about it turning more into a content bill than a systems bill. Yes, there is a central core still of systems and processes. And I think when we talk about systems and processes, we we need to think about two aspects. One is regulating the, the system itself and not the content directly. And secondly, having a process in place, uh, which is basically risk assessment and, and risk mitigation. And if you look at the illegal content duties and the child safety duties, you can see that for the general buckets of content, 
you still have quite a strong systems and processes approach. It, you know, there is a requirement for risk assessment. The risk assessment looks at functionalities, user base, even including governance and business model in principle. And then there is a general duty to, to mitigate risks, both for the criminal content and the content harmful to children. The problem does start to come in when we, we look at the priority content, because although you can understand that as saying, this is a signal to platforms that this is stuff we definitely want taken care of and want taken care of well, which on one level is understandable, it does mean that the discussion has drifted, I think, from a safety by design approach, which is where I started, more to ex-post measures and particularly questions about takedown and specific items of content. And I've been of the view that looking at specific items of content just won't scale. You know, you can't translate, uh, say, old school broadcasting regulation to the social media environment just because you've got a vast quantity rapidly changing content, even before you get into contexts and you know, different types of speakers and, and all those more difficult questions. I think you can say the debate around takedown uh, has occupied central stage. And I don't think it's necessarily what a systems and processes approach is about. It's interesting when you think about that as well, that in the parliamentary process, there's always going to be a sort of more of a focus on specific types of content and processes. Mm. It's I guess why you and the architects of the bill wanted to go for a more systems and process approach that wasn't necessarily at the whims of whatever the major controversy was of the day. But I was reflecting on this a little bit with the reaction to, in another area of digital policy, where the CMA, uh, the Competition and Markets Authority, has moved to block the merger of Microsoft and Activision, which saw an absolutely furious response from Microsoft and Activision in the press front pages on it on the FT and various other places and no doubt I don't know this but I can only assume a lot of grumbling in number 10 and other parts of government about what this has said about the UK's reputation as a as a place for inward tech investment and it just made me think about the pressure that the CMA's chief executive was under at that time and is still under no doubt and was thinking about online content and how this will play out for Melanie Dawes the CEO of Ofcom and uh, her successors, where there will no doubt be this huge pressure around takedown requirements. And I think Ofcom might find themselves in a quite difficult position in the future, whereby controversies come, let's say, the next football tournament, there's racist abuse online, ministers pile in, as well as the public and the media. And there's Ofcom there saying, well, actually, this is about systems, processes, and the duty of care, and so on. So I, I wonder if you had thoughts, I mean, that seems a tight spot for the regulator to be in. Yeah, um, I I think the debate has not helped that because it has focused on individual items of content and, and takedown. And I think there will be some issues around perhaps expectation management uh, in that regard. So I would agree there's, the, there's an issue there for Ofcom. And I think that's why 
Ofcom's independence is is critical because at the moment the bill contains provisions where Ofcom drafts codes and these codes tell companies how they can satisfy their safety duty. The companies don't have to follow them, it's comply or explain at the moment, but it, it's saying this is how we see compliance looking. But at the moment, the Secretary of State has the power to intervene. And there is a question there against the background you just highlighted, you know, given the the, the core celebre of the day, the extent to which the Secretary of State would seek to push off COP. I mean, there are safeguards in there about sort of not intervening on individual cases, but there still is a question about for something that is going to be quite technical in nature and quite, I suppose, almost abstract, you know, what the, the contribution of the Secretary of State could be. They are, they are not technical experts. Yeah, you could see the situation whereby there's big pressure, whether it gets to the point of the Secretary of State intervening formally or not, but pressure from ministers publicly and from Parliament and the opposition and so on and the media, and Ofcom almost having to almost undertake performative meetings or performative mm. putting companies over their, their feet over the coals to sort of, uh, despite them, those companies will find themselves in a position whereby they will be saying, well, you know, we've we followed the code or we complained or expired, we're following the process and yet we're still getting sort of hung out to dry in public. You can sort of see that dynamic. There is an odd provision. I think it might be clause 156 or 157, somewhere around there wherein I think it's exceptional circumstances the Secretary of State can tell Ofcom to use its media literacy powers to get platforms to say what they are doing about a particular issue. So we might see that uh, rolled out in the circumstances yeah. that I'm describing. Well, let, let's, let's take another circumstance. Um, you will have seen, like many people who follow this issue in the UK, this threat from WhatsApp and Signal that they would be prepared to leave the UK if restrictions on encryption are brought in via the online safety bill. For those uh, who don't follow the bill so closely, it's not that the bill necessarily says that encryption will be applied, but there is a provision whereby Ofcom as the regulator may look to introduce certain provisions depending on the specific service. So there's lots of if and buts here. So it's not necessarily going to happen, but there is an important point there about whether a messaging service like this does have an obligation to scan its platform for, for instance, child sexual abuse material or terrorist content and so on and so forth. And we have a similar debate going on in Brussels at the moment with what is known as the CSAM uh, regulation. You wrote in one of the papers I referred to earlier with Will Perrins that messaging services should be within scope. I think this is the paper in uh, 2019 excluding one-to-one -one communications but when it gets to 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 a larger groups as we often see happening on, on whatsapp that's where they are more public than private in nature what are your reflections on the the threat from from these companies and how do you how do you interpret that in the bill moving forward and when it's implemented by the regulator i think i'm going to start with a, a a little bit of background on on the issue we in that paper we're talking about a, a, a general systemic duty, so a, a safety by design 
uh, approach rather than specifying particular filters. And I think the point we were trying to make was that one-to-one communications have traditionally been thought to be confidential and central to the right to private life. And we wanted to respect that and reflect the fact that in telecoms, telcos can't go around listening into their users' communications. But as you said, we also wanted to reflect the fact that within messaging apps, there's, there's a range of communication models and not all of them really map onto that traditional idea of what privacy and confidentiality means. So I think a debate which starts from, I'm a messaging app, therefore I'm private, doesn't help because of the range of, of ways they're set up. So I think we need to, to pause and to look a little bit in more detail as to how those platforms operate and whether we're really talking about privacy all the time. So that's one point. Having said that, there is still a, a, a privacy question, even if we're in quasi-public uh, contexts. And if we look at the uh, e-commerce directive, that was reflected in uh, what was Article 15, which says no general monitoring. Now, some people have said that things like upload filters, uh, which look for specific hashed images, are contrary to this. And the court might have agreed, this is the Court of Justice, uh, might have agreed, say, around 2012. But more recently, I think that that court is beginning to accept that there is a difference between looking at people's communications at their content in general and looking for something specific in those communications. So that is a, a, a distinction that is being made in the court. Whether you find that convincing, uh, perhaps is, um, you know, down to your own view on the relative importance of privacy and the protection of children from very, very serious harm. But I think the, the case law can tell us something else. And, and this is perhaps where we might get some, some way forward rather than saying this is a zero-sum gain. And this is looking at, you know, safeguards. If you look at the case that was on the upload filter for the copyright, the digital copyright directive, that wasn't ruled out of bounds automatically, but the court was very clear about the need for safeguards, looking at the accuracy of the filters, you know, sort of rights for recompense, oversight, those sorts of things. Now, the bill doesn't leave Ofcom completely unconstrained. These measures come in, you know, sort of quite a way down the track. Their enforcement measures probably after most other things have failed. And Ofcom is directed to, to have regard to, to privacy and it is a public body, so it's bound by the Human Rights Act, Section, section 6. So there are some, if you like, soft 
safeguards in there. You know, it may be that the government could think about looking at how you you improve those safeguards in terms of when things are deployed, the sorts of tools that are deployed, how they're used to sort of improve the position. I can see the argument for that. I wonder if the counter from the companies who've made these threats would be that the engineering task to separate different rules for scanning content between one-on-one or, I don't know, Hmm. where we draw the threshold, two-on-one or three-on-two, five people in a group, is that private or not? Let's say that's the limit. Having a limit, having no content sort of monitoring regards for those sorts of conversations, but then having them for everything else would presumably be quite the engineering feat. And so to your point earlier about safety by design, I guess they would argue that the horse has bolted a little bit here and their services are out there. They would be retrofitting these requirements specifically mm. for the UK. And that's the that's the sort of argument and the tension that they're, they're, they're pulling on. Yeah, but I suppose you've pointed out the Europeans are looking at this already. Not without controversy, though. Yeah, we've already got the, <laughs> the, the, the digital copyright directive in place, which, which requires some of it. There are existing terrorism rules. And I suppose, you know, I, I do accept that, that there is an issue here. I'm, I'm not saying there isn't. But I think arguing that we've designed our service one way, you should design your, your rules around us, is not the way I expect democracy to work. Um, I think it's the other way around. Um, and we already have some of this in operation. So let's move on to a different topic. There's um, the emerging issue of virtual reality and mm. the so-called metaverse. I mean, the metaverse was the big buzz before ChatGPT came along. It's sort of on the downer a little bit now, but it's still there in the background. And virtual reality is clearly going to continue to develop over the coming years as large tech companies continue to invest in it, albeit perhaps on a slightly lower scale. And this has prompted this discussion about the extent to which legislation like the Online Safety Bill or indeed the EU's Digital Service Act or even the limited liability exemptions under Section 230 in in the States, there are live debates about whether these pieces of legislation actually apply to more immersive technologies like virtual reality, where the question around harm is often more associated with behavior and conduct than it is with content takedowns. You've uh, said in public, I saw in a media article, I think from last year, saying the online safety regime applies to the metaverse. Can you just elaborate on why why you think that is the case? Or why, why is the OSB future-proofed in such a way that makes it appropriate for these new immersive environments? The online safety bill regulates user-to-user services. So your first question is, can the metaverse fit the definition of a user-to-user service? And I came to the conclusion that, yes, it could. Basically, a user-to-user service is an environment, for want of a better word, where one user can encounter content uploaded 
created, posted, however, by another. So if we are envisaging the metaverse to allow people to interact, then in principle, the regime is applicable. There is a question about content. It has been the subject of, I think, some some debate around the online safety bill as to how far content covers everything online. So there's been one discussion about whether it content could cover uh, the process of of a of a platform personalising your your newsfeed or whatever, and so in the case of content that individually items of content individually are not harmful, cumulatively are, is that process of putting them all together also content? Would would we catch that? Um, content, I think catches quite a lot. They talk about data, images, sound. So although people might be acting uh, rather than just speaking, that activity is turned into images, sound, data. So I think there's an argument to say that the behaviours online could be covered by that idea of regulated content. It wouldn't catch, I suppose, content provided by the platform itself. It would only be user content. So if you're, I don't know, driving an off-the-shelf avatar, uh, is the avatar your content as a user? Presumably what it does is so there 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 are some interesting questions about how you you you'd apply it but i think on balance yes the problem i had with um the way the online safety bill is is currently structured is that maybe the remedies that are envisaged implicitly assume that we've got a, a sort of text and um, stat, more static image-based archive sort of environment. So how do you operate takedown in live stream? For example, if, if there's no recording, uh, you know, you can't stop it anyway, you can't delete it if it's already gone. So some of the ideas, how do they translate to uh, a sort of real-time environment? So I, I, I think, you know, the, the online safety bill could cover it, but whether it be a perfect fit in terms of how it works, um, less clear. Obviously, you go back to those general duties and say do a risk assessment and mitigate that doesn't imply necessarily takedown. So maybe those general duties have to work harder. Yeah, I was going to say the it's almost a case there for systems and processes. A systems bill rather than a content bill, which you, mm. you said at the start, seems to be where this would apply. And 
Melanie Dawes herself, when we did a reception in October last year, our chairman asked asked her the question about does it apply? She was yes, it applies. There there will be no period of self regulatory honeymoon for the for the metaverse and for VR. But as you say, there is a question of it's going to be test case. It's going to be it's going to be played out between the regulator and the companies in this sort of dy- dynamic interaction by which the regulator is expecting standards to be applied. Companies experimenting with whether what they are doing is sufficient to the regulator standards and thereby the regulators saying yes and no. However, it does require regulators to have enough capacity to actually think about these things. When when you think about the online safety bill isn't even law yet, Ofcom is only really very recently an online safety regulator. It's traditionally a broadcasting telecoms regulator. It's got the audiovisual stuff recently, but still it's pretty nascent. Uh, there's a lot to sort out when you've got platforms that are going to be regulating for the first time with billions of users globally. Same on the EU side with the DSA. So the ability to then start thinking in real detail about VR platforms that maybe don't have that many people on it in a proportionate, hmm. pragmatic way, it's going to take a long time, I think, unless one of these platforms really takes off for that to play out in detail. But let's get on to the broader regulatory philosophy that you had. We've sort of touched on this this question a little bit earlier with WhatsApp. I... There is a point that's come out in the online safety bill and it comes up with this user empowerment issue in particular, which uh, essentially, and I'm going to simplify this, but essentially would allow users of a platform to exclude seeing content from non-verified users, which sounds like a great idea. You can, you just won't see anonymous content, or not necessarily anonymous, but you won't see unverified content that perhaps might pollute your feed in a way in which you don't like. All sounds good. The problem is, if that provision only applies in the UK, then it's a UK-specific solution unless platforms decide to apply the same technical solution globally, which they're probably unlikely to do. It's a long way of sort of asking you the question that where do you see the limits of UK-specific regulation? How much can the UK really be a digital leader in regulation we've got in the face of a total absence of federal regulation in the us that might change but a few signs of it changing anytime soon the eu is doing a lot but not necessarily the same the digital services act does something similar but other bits uh, different in some ways the uk has led globally the age appropriate design code got adopted in places like california the eu's looking at something similar at the moment but Surely not every single time is the UK going to be able to force global companies to have bespoke solutions for the UK. Or am, am I wrong? Fragmentation of markets is is an issue. But it's interesting to see that, that some of the companies have already started to cope with different market regulatory requirements. The GDPR. Uh, I mean, that is possibly uh, limited to terms of service, but presumably there are some technical changes behind that to give meaning to the different terms of service, she says, hopefully. Um, You know, and we see recently Meta moving UK users to the the American terms of service. So there are already existing examples where companies are adapting to different... Uh, local environments. Obviously, the UK on its own is in a different position from the EU, which is much bigger. 
Having said that, the UK is, I think, a reasonable market for some of the big companies. I think there is some similarity in approach. And I think particularly for the the big companies, the, the, the very large online platforms in, in DSA speak, probably going to be category one in online safety speak. They're going to be looking at codes, aren't they? Codes to to give the detail. And in a way, the, the UK is offering some flexibility by saying comply or explain. So you could find that a duty to mitigate could lead to similar technical considerations within a DSA code as a UK code. And it's interesting also to look at things like uh, Australia and the safety commissioner and the, the, the work she's doing on safety by design. And I think the Canadians are in a way looking at some of this. So I think it is the question of how similar do the national legislative frameworks need to be for a code actually to be usable cross-border. And, and, and you stumbled into my, my, my latest pet theory, which is that if you get the codes right, you can sort of identify core elements that work in relation to different um, legislative framings. And that ameliorates the problems. I mean, you're always going to have issues, say, oh, take criminal content down. Criminal law is going to be different. But in terms of a system, it's about how do you adequately staff and train? Uh, you know, what are your moderation processes? The, the system behind that could be pretty similar. Yeah, it makes me think, going back to the competition policy analogy whereby the EU is implementing at the moment is Digital Markets Act, mm -hmm. ex-ante requirements on uh, larger gatekeeper platforms uh, to ensure competition, a little bit like the telecom sector is regulated. And the UK has just published legislation for the Digital Markets Unit. And one thing on the Digital Markets Unit, the government ministers were talking about, look, our, our system is more flexible, it's more nimble than the EU's alternative thereby it's it's more business friendly or it's don't worry businesses have been regulated it's not as bad as what the EU is doing but actually when you talk to people in the C competition and markets authority in the CMA it's pretty clear to me that the outcomes could be quite similar because if the EU regime comes in first the CMA aren't full of blinkered individuals who aren't going to look at what is happening and what is working or not working on the EU side they're almost certainly going to borrow the most effective measures, partly because platforms will have had to comply with them in 27 neighbouring countries anyway, so it'd be relatively practically easy to apply in the UK as well. So I think, as you say, there's going to be a pragmatism across different areas of digital regulation in different jurisdictions. But let's move on to that, that, that the, this consistency point, less between countries and between those regulators. You've got wide expertise in other digital areas you referred to some before on copyright but also around data protection so you you know these areas well and i wondered if you 
had any reflections on whether the balkanized way in which we are regulating digital services is a positive or a negative in the way that we have Ofcom in the UK looking after online safety regulation. You have the Information Commissioner's Office for the Data Protection. We have the Competition and Markets Authority on the digital competition side. And there is a, just a, a sense that we're sort of regulating in bits and chunks. And I wondered if you thought whether there was sense for a more comprehensive digital regulatory regime, more like something we would see in financial services where it's regulation by type of service, uh, it's conduct requirements on senior management and so on and so forth. And some of those concepts are being borrowed into tech regulation in, in bits and pieces, but not, not, not in any way like the scale that we see in, in FS. So over to you. Do you, did you think that would be a positive or, or a negative? I argued against a si single digital regulator because I don't think you can define what digital is. And, it, and, and you've given the example of the FSA. There's digital aspects um, to the FSA. So if you're doing your digital regulator, do you suddenly say digital regulator has to have specialist financial services expertise to, to deal with, I don't know, crypto scam ads and, and sort of Bitcoin Ponzi schemes? Um, you know, I think the idea of the digital as a sector is misconceived. Digital is part of daily life. And so it is appropriate to have sector-specific regulators where they've got specific expertise. So competition law requires particular skill set, particular knowledge base. Um, likewise, data protection has its own arcane uh, sort of knowledge base. Um, so I think saying digital just raises the question of what is digital. I think you can identify as a sector the delivery platforms, and that's what's been regulated. That's what a ring's been drawn around. Uh, if you look at the online safety bill, they've looked at one element in, I suppose, the digital environment, and they focused on that. But I don't think you could have done the entire thing because of the myriad ways in which the digital environment is used. And I suppose in a way it's, it, it's different from the DSA that it doesn't try and get into uh, e-commerce platforms, uh, you know, doesn't look at Uber and the like. But I think that's, that's legitimate. What is important is getting regulators to talk to each other. And I think the Di Digital Regulators Cooperation Forum is a good start, but I think there are so many questions going forward that impact different regulatory areas that we may need to, to think more broadly about how do you get regulators talking to each other. There was um, a, a a question in Parliament the other day about health disinformation and uh, the government talked about the MHRA but you know how do we get MHRA to talk to Ofcom if we think health misinformation is harmful to children 
Yeah, and I, you see this issue come up with the AI white paper that the government published a couple of months ago, which was all focused on individual regulators overseeing individual sectors in a similar type of approach about how it, the the outcomes and the harms that may come from AI in their very specific circumstances in, say, financial services or healthcare, which there's a logic to it, but it also does require there to be a base level of communication and consultation between regulators, or suddenly you'll find financial services regulators going or hair and off in one direction, and then other regulators going in another, and potentially creating inconsistent regimes, which nicely takes us on to, to AI. Now, we, we said at the start, we want to talk a little bit about ChatGPT. When you started the process to think through what a duty of care system might look like for online safety regulation or online harms regulation, as we used to call it, ChatGPT wasn't, you know, no one even thought of it. It was years away at that point, but it's totally transformed the tech landscape. It's totally transformed how people are starting to think through all sorts of regulatory issues in tech not just related to online safety we've seen it around education we see it with copyright we see it uh, in other areas um, uh, that are emerging day by day by day but online safety specifically i wanted to get your thoughts does it change the game for the online safety bill We've seen amendments in the House of Lords, which aims to bring, I think the term is used, machine-generated content within the scope of the online safety bill. And we've seen lots of fears around the potential scale for misinformation or even indeed disinformation uh, online and almost the idea of it being almost like a mis misinformation factory. But firstly, are you concerned about this in the context of online safety? And do you think the bill needs to shift in order to reflect the developments of the last six months? I think that there is a gap in the bill and that a lot of the AI, specifically generative um, AI, large language models stuff, um, raise questions in that gap. And that is what was uh, legal but harmful or content harmful to adults. I suppose the same issues will possibly arise in relation to content harmful for children, so we, we may still have to think about it. Um, disinformation, misinformation aren't really covered by the, the bill in general. There's a, an advisory committee, uh, but I've never been quite sure what its purpose was. Um, I suppose there is the question about what these sorts of tools do for or to children. Um, you know, we, we, we talked about health misinformation, you know, sort of are you uh, asking the search engine um, about a, a health condition as a child and getting, you know, sort of chat GPT stuff back. You know, is that a worry? I. I think so. So in principle, these things are tools, features, functionalities within the context of the online safety bill. So at a very abstract level, you would say you need to risk assess these things. Um, and it is not just about data protection uh, or copyright. There are impacts from, as I've 
suggested inaccurate information. Um, but there are other questions about the biases and the stereotypes that are that are encoded in there coming from the training models, which is uh, uh, another series of risks. And to some extent, the the bill recognises that. I mean, it, it does refer to some of the, the protected characteristics, e even in the context of um, abuse and user empowerment tools. You mentioned as, as part of that data protection, I just wanted to pick up on, on that particular point uh, with regards to ChatGPT and generative AI just before we wrap up, Lorna, because we saw the Italian data protection regulator suspend ChatGPT for breaches against the EU's GDPR. I think it's been reinstated uh, now. But we do have, I think, a task force from the European Data Protection Board that's looking into ChatGPT. We haven't seen much happen on the UK side, at least not that I've I've spotted necessarily. So with your data protection hat on, to what extent are you concerned about what ChatGPT, large language models, generative AI, whatever the term we use, what, what is this a big concern in data, data protection terms? There is, there's always been a tension um, between an approach to data which is let's scoop it all up and use it and see what we can do with it and this is all very exciting uh, and the GDPR style model which is about control and limiting data use. So if you look at the GDPR it says if there is the processing of personal data and some of the data used for the initial training will be personal data. The question has been, what is the legal base for that processing and have you uh, complied as a process, uh, as a data controller or a processor with, with the requirements? And if people don't know their data's been scraped, um, and don't have a direct contract with these uh, the people developing these models, then you're looking really at legitimate interest, which has to take into account the uh, the privacy of the of the subject. So, so there is a question there about you know acquiring the data in the first place, what it's used for. Then you know if you're looking at the foundational models then they're onward used, so they could be shared with other data controllers and processors, and so there's got to be um, thought about that. Then there are user rights to correct, and we know how accurate ChatGPT's been, but there's also the right to be forgotten. And at the very least, I think with these things, there's probably going to be um, you know, the transparency obligations, the data uh, recording obligations, risk assessment. And one final point I saw in the news the other day that there'd been a, a security breach at ChatGPT. So there are security obligations uh, as regards data protection. But the thing I struggle with with data protection ChatGPT is I get all those points. I think that's, that's clear where you set that out where there could be legal breaches of GDPR from, from either ChatGPT or other competitors. 
but I struggle to see the harm. I mean, you can see some of it a little bit, but it's not like, say, the critique of the tech sector over the last 15 years would be you're scraping everyone's data and then you're monetizing it and then micro-targeting back at people in a way that is not necessarily positive or you're getting people addic you know, addicted to content while micro-targeting ads at them and then scraping the data. There's a sort of unvirtuous cycle. As you can sort of see a, a theory of harm there to, to individuals and why policymakers felt compelled to bring in things like the GDPR. With this, if your data is sort of scraped but then jumbled up with all God knows how much else in there, I, I, I struggle to see how it's that identifiable for me personally and how that is then used in a way that creates me very much personal harm. But maybe I'm, maybe I'm being naive here. I suppose it depends what, what you think the GDPR's about doing um and i'm not sure it is aimed at just preventing um concrete harms i remember uh back in the 1990s a discussion about anonymized data and a colleague of mine gave me the example of uh medical data from gps being taken and all mixed up for research purposes. Now, imagine the position of a devout Catholic whose data is used to facilitate contraception or abortion. Um, there, there, there are consequences we can't see that may still be leaving us in a, a, a position where we think my beliefs, my autonomy, my state as a, as, a, as a human to do my own thing have been just utterly disregarded. And, and I think that's one of the, I suppose, more philosophical questions. There is also the problem that these data sets are not necessarily benign, that, that there are discrimination problems uh, with them in, in the sense that they probably reflect society. So there is a question of how much do we want to build on the skews that are there in these data sets and use them going forward. Now that's not directly a, a, a data protection issue, but it is a more general discrimination, uh, almost reliability, desirability question. Yeah, I wonder if it's a lot of this comes down more to control rather than harm and about consent rather than particular difficulties that could come to you personally or to broader interest groups from this. But I suspect we are, Lorna, just at the, the cusp of this debate. So we'll see what the European Data Protection Board and others come up with it and see whether the Information Commissioner's Office here takes... Uh, a bit of a closer eye than it has done uh, to date. But just to thank you so much for joining us today and taking us through that whole range of different issues from the genesis of online safety regulation through to what ChatGPT uh, means for us now as we think about the future of regulation. And just for those on the line, thanks again for joining us. If you, uh, your business or your investment are exposed to the online safety questions we talked about today, data protection, AI regulation, and so on and so forth, don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find our contact details on GC's website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. 
So thanks again to Lorna and thanks again to everyone for joining us and see you next week. Bye-bye.